I lived in a trailer growing up. I remember having this really strange moment of the bus pulling down and literally a girl in front of everyone asked me, how do you get laid living here? Jason Hartley, co-founder of MMA On Point. A London-based YouTube channel with over 1 million subscribers. What was your career like before you started working at MMA On Point? The first time I went and saw a financial advisor, <laughs> the guy was like, the hell's wrong with you, dude? I was like, yeah, I've, I guess I've taken a lot of risks through life trying to become a musician. And you just have this kind of epiphany of just like, oh, wow, I've been doing the wrong thing this entire time. Decision to go full time. Were you scared? Were you nervous? It was a conviction. It was just a level of just inner kind of confidence in what we were doing. There was just nobody really doing it. Let's get into the nitty gritty here for YouTube. You're asking of them what is inarguably the most valuable thing ever, and that is their time. People say to me all all the time. Troy, how do you get so much done? Because I live with such intention and purpose mm. every day. I don't waste time. It's not happiness. It's the pursuit of happiness. There's happiness that you can experience in the moment, but you're always striving for something else. And I wrestle with that question a lot. It's like, well, what else? What is the goal? What is the goal? Jeez. Talking about existential question. I don't like surface level conversation. I need depth. I need to know Let's everything. I need the trauma. I need the backstories. <laughs> I need the goals and the, yeah. the hopes and dreams and the lost loves. I need all of it. Thank you for being here, or rather, thank you for allowing <laughs> me to be here in your studio yeah. uh, here just outside of London. Honored to be here and to talk to you today. Someone I really admire in the content business, in the YouTube business, and in the MMA business, which is a sport that you and I both work in. We won't talk too much about MMA. I want to get more into the weeds of, of your story, life in London, YouTube, which has just so many fascinating components to it, especially in 2024. But I think the best place to start just to establish kind of who you are for my audience, can you just tell me what it is exactly you do and why you do it? Yeah, so um, I'm a YouTuber. That's what I do for a living. I talk about MMA. And uh, what we do is typically top tens. That's what we're most known for. But we also do in-depth essays and we also run a podcast. And uh, we upload five days a week and we just talk about the sport of MMA. And the reason why I do it, oh man. Why? Yeah, it's such a dumb sport, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like there's no, there's no sugarcoating. We're talking about men fighting inside of a cage while women walk around also half clothed there no one's wearing clothes in this yeah. business uh it's it's such a strange thing but for some reason i couldn't tell you exactly why i love it but it was something you know when i had a typical job that you know i was like sneaking off to you know watch a press conference or something like that while my lunch break you know so uh, it's just something i've always really enjoyed and youtube you know new media find it really interesting something i'm passionate about and yeah that's about Probably the best answer I can give you. So I'll try try to elucidate further if I can. But what was your career like before you started working at MMA on point? Oh man, all over the place. Um, so w when I was in my younger 20s, so uh, you know, you and I were talking about ages now. So I'm 37. Uh, I went to you know university at a later age, a non trad as it was called in Tennessee, and. Before that, I thought I was going to be a pro musician. You know, I play drums, I uh, played in bands all throughout growing up and things like that. And at a point, I actually thought one of those bands was going to make it. Tragically, it didn't. You know, everybody cried, you know, big deal. And uh, I started to get into management at a bunch of different jobs, uh, like Target <laughs> managed a design business, which is some weird serendipitous way of mm. connecting through everything. 
and went to university and had my first like quote unquote big boy job uh, at your age. Actually, I was about 28 and I hated it. Uh, it was in the industry. I, that is one thing, uh, you know, in terms of talking about that, I it was a PR related job. So there's lots of NDA signed and all that kind of stuff in relation to it. So I won't get into too much detail on that specifically, but it was a very demanding job. You worked tons of hours. You did video production, you did design, you did everything. And uh, it was a very small team. And so I, I hated it because it was so much time. And I realized the kind of work ethic I have, YouTube or whatever it was, I, I had no idea at that point, but I just knew I needed to get out of there. So I, I did have a director role for a, a PR, running PR as well for a company. And yeah, just found better options outside of it and found paving my own way was a better option, you know? So at what point did this MMA on point YouTube thing start to become a thing? Yeah. So while I did have that job, I did teeter with this or, or experiment with this. So, you know, I tried uploading a few videos and I knew it would do really well, but just didn't really have the time. And so after I left that job, I applied for a video editing position for another YouTube uh, you know, just kind of big network. They do all kinds of stuff. So they're called What Culture. They're based in the north of England. So Newcastle. Um, and they would do movies, TVs. Uh, they would do pro wrestling. They would do comic books. They would do all kinds of stuff. And most of these channels are million plus type kind of thing. And while working there, I was like, hey, there's this sport I really like called MMA. I've made a couple of videos. What do you guys think? And uh, they kind of didn't know to make heads or tails of it. They were experimenting with it and they'd even put up a few videos, but they had no idea if I knew what I was talking about. There was no quality control from their perspective. And so, they, yeah, they just, they passed on it. But in that process, I met my business partner here who lives obviously in the UK and that's, you know, my connection to moving here. And... Yeah, we we just kind of formed a friendship and said, let's do this together. And we knew while we were working all the time, you know, uh, you know, basically working essentially nine to five, but it's freelance and so not really. But that was our our work that we were doing throughout the week was all that freelance work that we were doing. And then on the weekends, we would just binge to get a video done. And because there's two of us, we were able to upload two times a week. And it was as simple as that. And uh, lucky enough for us, one of the biggest boxing fights happened, and it happened to involve an MMA fighter by the name of Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. That sold 4 million pay-per-view buys. To put in perspective, there's only one other pay-per-view that did that, and that was Mayweather versus Pacquiao. MMA has never come close to that in terms of their record. So it was just a very lucky, uh, you know, a, a a stroke of luck that just so happened to happen the first month we started and we had a few videos blow up and we were off to the races by the end of the year. I was full time by, we started in August of 2017 and by January of 2018, I was full time. Crazy. So I imagine your parents or people in your life, people <laughs> who care about you when you told them, Hey, I'm going to go be a YouTuber and I'm going to make content about mixed martial arts arts and it's going to be my full-time job and i'm not going to do anything else what was their reaction when you went all in on this thing that sounds absolutely crazy and stupid oh yeah 
well, my dad has actually watched a bit of boxing, you know, so he understands at least the sport on some level. My mother, I think she wishes it was WWE where they're not, you know, I know those guys get injured. They go through tough schedules and things like that, but, you know, maybe not, you know, bleeding themselves dry. <laughs> uh, and I don't think it was until, you know, we got a few months into it that, you know, I honestly just showed her, it's like, this is what I'm making from it. And she was like, oh, okay, it, it is a real thing. And at that point, I wasn't making a ton with it, but it was clearly matching you know, at least what I'd made in the past. And then they realized it was a real career path. But for the first bit, I just didn't tell anybody about it um, because it is kind of one of those things. You tell somebody you're going to be a YouTuber. Everybody says that, you know, right. I, I see it all the time on Twitter, for instance, or X, whatever you want to call it, where somebody lists themselves as a journalist or they'll list themselves as a YouTuber or a TikTok or whatever it is. And then you check out their account and they have like a hundred subscribers. You're like, okay, you very much don't want to <laughs> say, Hey, I'm a full-time YouTuber, you know? So it, for the longest time it was, Oh, this is just another thing I'm doing. And then once it became a real viable thing where I could say, Hey, you know, I'm paying my rent with it, paying my bills with it, uh, able to make a livelihood off of it. I think that was when I started actually calling myself a YouTuber. And so, yeah, th there was more of a gradient. There was more of a transition into it. But yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think uh, I've always really enjoyed philosophy. I always enjoyed talking about religion and things like that. So I think some people were like, of all the things you chose, yeah. did not think it was going to be MMA. Yeah. Did not think it was going to be that. You know, I would consider you an artist and with someone who has a music background, you know, musicians, YouTubers, social media people. Yeah. I'm now an author. Like if that if that's Ooh. what you're doing, yeah. It's not a hey, you're getting a paycheck every other week. There's an element of uncertainty and instability always. Yes. And that is the you know, comes with just being a freelancer in general as well. Like you're going to have up months, you're going to have down months. And those those down months, you're kind of freaking out. So I'm just wondering, take me back to that decision to go full time. Were you scared? Were you nervous? Were you, God, like this isn't going to work out and then I'm going to be out on the streets? Yeah. Um, well, so much of what we were doing was, it felt like the rest of the world creatively was doing it on YouTube, except for MMA. Mm. And, and for, the, for a long time, I think there was this major gap in terms of creativity when it came to the sport. You would have journalists like some of the people that you work with, Ariel Wani is probably the biggest journalist in the space. Um, you would have people like that that were very successful, but you would kind of look around, it was just some guy that would turn on a camera and not really put much effort in, or if somebody did, they would hire a voiceover artist and they would mispronounce all the names. No. But we, we knew, we knew that mm. this was going to work. And sometimes you, there's some uncertainty and there's confidence. And of course, there's a bit of that in the beginning, but we had already done this. You know, I had edited several videos for What Culture, like I was saying, based in Newcastle, that had done several million views on one video. And I knew if somebody did this for MMA, as big as it was blowing up, the kind of stuff that Conor McGregor in particular, as the biggest star, he was kind of at the peak of his height of stardom. Um, just knew it was going to work out. And so we had the revenue to say it was working by the time I decided to go full time. And we had a track record that was building and building and building, you know, not to say it's been smooth ever since then. There's definitely been tough times, but by the time I hit January, it was like, okay, I feel very confident in this. Wow. 
there's there's a lot of luck involved, you know, absolutely. Timing as well. Timing's everything, especially in the fight game. <laughs> Dude. Well, you know, you know, you imagine Tom, you know, my business partner. If I did not meet him, I would have absolutely got burnt out, you know. Yeah. Making one video a week is great, but trying to do it on your own, not having accountability, it's why people have workout partners. It's why people have business partners for a large reason, is because they're gonna have not just somebody that can hold up their deficiencies and cover that yeah. area. There's also that part of that camaraderie. You have someone that's you're holding yourself accountable to. And I think we're all social beings. And at least in my case, I really thrive off of that where it's like, oh yeah, uh, you're doing this. I'm doing this. Got to buckle down. Doesn't matter how tired I am. I'm going to get after it. And uh, procrastination and things like that, they all still exist. It's all a real thing <laughs> that you have to deal with. But when you have someone else there, yeah, I mean, it just, you want to do right by them, you know? When did you start to expand the team? Because I, I know that when you're Ooh. a creator and when you are in those early days, you've built this thing, you're obsessing over this thing, you know how everything runs. It's really hard to explain it to other people. A lot of creatives, I'm the same way, a bit of a control freak. Mm. It's hard to let go and let someone else do your thing that you've yes. been building. So when did you start to expand a and B, how did you allow yourself to accept giving work to someone else? Man, I, I wasn't accepting of it, the idea at all. It was actually Tom's idea. He was like, you know, we need to be able to expand. And you can't do that when you're in the weeds 100%. If, you're, if you can't see above everything, how can you manage it? And so I think there was a huge part of that. But it was really hard at first because it's your baby, you know? This is something you made out of nothing. At the time, you know, it it was a huge prospect for me where, you know, leaving that earlier job, it's it's kind of like, all right, I guess I'll find something for my entire life to be about. Cause you you I'm I'm not somebody that has an incredibly structured plan in life. I do like that randomness in life. But there's also this part that says, all right, I've gone to uh, university to study PR. I've become a PR guy, realized I hated it. What do I do now? And so you have that kind of, um, that attachment to something where you realized, okay, I've been able to do this, not entirely on my own, but largely on my own back. And yeah, you have a, a real connection to it. And I think that's a beautiful part though of art. And I think coming from that musical background, the collaboration and working together with people, once you can tap into that and you can get into that place, it is like playing on stage with a band. So like, oh yeah, um, I'm I'm handling some of these other things on the auxiliary elements. It might be some editing, it might be some thumbnail work, it might be some design, it might be helping to come up with the ideas, but they're able to take that and run with it. Yeah, I don't need to play all the instruments in the band, so to speak, mm. right? So. When you look back on those those earliest years of MMA on point, kind of before the move to London, hmm. what do you look back and kind of attribute to as the reasons why this worked out so well? There is a very just logical part to it. You know, um, looking at what I uh, had mentioned earlier with what culture, I just knew it would work. You just knew it would work. You, you knew that the format, the idea of top tens, um, I always kind of treated it like a Trojan horse. We're doing something that's very surface level, but then you go really deep into the weeds mm. for each of those things. So you grab a new fan that way. But again, yeah, it just kind of comes back to the idea. We, we knew if we had the consistency in the time, it would work out. 
we just knew it would pay off. Um, so but why, but why so much conviction? There's so many YouTubers. There's so many. I, it's so saturated content just in general. There's so many options. I mean, 2017, it's not like it is now, but still yeah. streaming was a big thing. Podcasts were a big oh, thing. Yeah. Like there's, there were still so many options. So what allowed you to have so much conviction that like, yeah, we are the ones to do it right. Because there's other people. I'm sure yeah. it was like, if we're just consistent, we put out quality stuff, people will come. And then they're upset or, or confused as to why people don't come. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's 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 kind of a hard thing to describe. It's just it was a conviction. It was just a level of just inner kind of confidence in what we were doing. I think a big part of it too was again there was just nobody really doing it. So there was um, a channel called the Montage King MMA that used to do similar kind of work to what we were doing, and we saw that blow up as well. But that guy had pretty much for whatever reason stepped aside and stopped doing uploads. And so we just knew that there was a lane there. And I mean, that's the thing, you know, once you work for someone else, like we did with what culture, it was kind of the perfect training wheels. You realize a system works mm. and that dedication with that and a high enough level of quality. And you feel like you're putting forth, cause I mean, that's the thing, you know, it's like when it comes to the content side of things, I have imposter syndrome in a ton of ways, like a ton of ways. But for some reason, with this stuff, maybe it's because so much of it relies on factual basis, even though sometimes I'll verge over into the opinion realm of things. A lot of it, you just feel, yeah, the research is here. The editing is here. This looks good. It sounds good. It has to work. Um, yeah, maybe I needed it to work. I don't, I don't know. But yeah, it just felt right. It just did. Yeah. Did you set goals for yourself along the way? Were you like, by the end of this year, I want X subscribers? Yeah, yeah. So um, the goal for the first, um, well, the end of the year, because we started in August, so it's awkwardly five months, but we're going to hit 50,000 subscribers by December, um, by the this summer. this is 2017, yeah? 2017, okay. yeah. Then it was 100K by wow. the summer. It's a fast rise. Yeah, from yeah. Zero? Mm -hmm. wow. From zero? Wow. From zero, yeah. No, literally no subscribers at all. And I think there's a part of that where there's that newness, you know? So I think everybody, when they see something and you feel it, I, I, again, I keep using these musician analogies, but if you love your music, chances are that translates live. Yes. And hopefully the same thing happens with your art that you put together in terms of videos and creation and making stuff that you really care about. And I think that that's contagious. Mm -hmm. I think people pick up on that. And so, yeah, especially in the beginning, it's certainly slowed a whole lot more now because our market saturation, whatever you want to say. But yeah, especially there in the beginning, I think there were a lot of people who were like, why doesn't this exist in the MMA space? Yeah, I see what these guys are talking about, you know? What was that feeling like at the beginning when you were growing so fast, when you were just coming off of, you know, years in the PR business and not working, you having that more <sighs> traditional, stable job and then turning around leaving that entire world behind, yeah. going in business for yourself into an uncertain thing that you're not like positive, like how big is this going to be? So what was that like to know that like, I can make my own money, I can do my own thing and I don't need anyone? Oh, dude, I've worked so many shitty jobs, you know? <laughs> it, the contrast is just fascinating. Um, because yeah, it, it, there's this weird understanding that you start to build of... 
efficiency and working smarter, not harder, that classic saying, but really realizing it because, I mean, I work a ton. To this day, I probably work on average about 60 hours a week. There is that side of it where it's a labor of love. There's that side of it where it's just work, you know, at some point you're just like, God, I just want to go to bed or whatever (laughs) it is, you know, uh, God, I just want to go out for a beer with friends, you know, whatever it is. Um, I've worked really hard jobs my entire life at university. I was a junkie. I, I junkie, (laughs) let's add more to that sentence. Right. I was, I was somebody that was involved in all the clubs. I was in a fraternity. I was a peer mentor. So I would help out with university classes. I would do the public speaking stuff. And I was in a band, you have relationships, friendships, all that stuff going on at the same time. And so I'd always been that person that worked a lot of hours, but I never made a dime from it. I remember the first time I went and saw a financial advisor, (laughs) the guy was like, what the hell's wrong with you, dude? Uh, How are you, uh, you know, your age, for instance, and have barely anything to show for it? I was like, yeah, I guess I've taken a lot of risks through life trying to follow the, the band avenue and become a musician which is notoriously broke you know touring around in a a van you know no air conditioning in the winter or summer you know type kind of thing and you just have this kind of epiphany of just like oh wow i've been doing the wrong thing this entire time but also you have the realization that all those experiences really helped that work ethic that was kind of honed throughout the years and having this realization of after the van broke up that I had to start getting to management. Management wasn't enough without a four-year degree. Go get the four-year degree, become an A-level student, you know, do all those kind of things. Work a job you hate and then realize what you hate. Realize what you like, what you will tolerate and go down that path and somehow you end up forging something. But yeah, it's, it's all transformative shaping moments. So I hope I answered your question. That was very circuitous. It went a long <laughs> way around. <laughs> so. Does that not you in the back of your mind at all that you had this dream of wanting to be in a band and, and live that kind of lifestyle and that just hasn't panned out for you? No. Um, I, yeah, I still play music. So uh, Alex, one of the guys who does voiceover, oh. uh, voiceover work, um, he's also a singer and guitarist. So after you know i get done with work today i'm gonna go play music with those guys and have a great time and i think at some point you have to realize whenever you do something like that so i i realize there's almost a almost a contradiction here because i'm saying i knew that this would take off and i knew it would do really well in terms of youtube with music I mean, you get it beaten into you really young that you do not make money in music unless you do in the exceptional. It's not top 1%. It's probably not even 0.1%. It's probably 0.01%. To the point that it's not even worth pursuing. Oh my God, yeah. And you have this uh, realization that you really, at the end of the day, you have to love what you're doing and that has to be enough. And I think once that ticked off of my brain, I mean, there, there was one band, so... You know, I'm not going to say the name of the band that I almost joined that, you know, they were on a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Music. They were with Eyeball Records at the time. Um, And they wanted me to go on tour with them and do this thing. And it was a much bigger step up from what I had done. But I also had this realization. I keep saying the word realization. I guess I've just had plenty of those. But there was this moment of clarity where I realized if they find a better drummer, I'm out. I'm gone. 
These guys have made their way, and I understand it from their perspective. They want the best person possible. And yeah, you just have this realization again of, yeah, that's fine. And I'm okay to sidestep that and pass up that opportunity for something new to go in a different path and forge, you know, something a little bit more stable. Absolutely. And so, yeah, there, I, I think I accepted probably in my mid twenties that music probably wasn't going to be my career path. And yeah, it, you probably enjoy music more, you know, there's probably mm. a, even a subconscious level of like, this has to work. This ha then it becomes very frustrating. It's like if you play a video game or you play a sport, you know, whatever it is, and you have to do well and so much ride it rides on it. Yeah. that becomes a problem. Yeah. It becomes a real passion killer when you're like, Hey, when you're working a nine to five and you sit there daydreaming about, I just want to be a photographer. I just want to be a YouTuber. I just want to make music for a living. Mm -hmm. And then you decide to go all in on that thing which you have to be obsessive and put in crazy weeks. And then when it's not panning out or it's not happening as quickly as you would like it to, you start to resent that thing, that thing that you used to love so much. So there's yeah. definitely, uh, you know, something to just like having your passions be just side things, just that you do for fun to de-stress, to wind down and to not try to make it into something. Yeah. I mean that that is such a good point when you when you say it like that because I think that that decision was made so long ago that I don't even consciously think of it that way. But that is absolutely like one of the best parts of the week is absolutely just going with your friends, playing some music, and there is nothing else. No there's pressure. no stress. There's nothing. It's just a good time. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's that's great. Yeah. Good point. So MMA on point. You are doing, you know, you're still very much in the weeds of the day to day. You said five videos a week. You have let go of some of the responsibilities that you did used to uh, do, but you're still a madman putting out a bunch of stuff. YouTube, I was listening to an interview last week with Emma Chamberlain, mm. um, who I'm just like, I have so much respect for. I'm not a big fan of like her content, uh, just not for me, but I have so much respect for her. And she said that YouTube is just an obsession. Oh, yeah. Mr. B says the same thing. It's mm -hmm. an obsession. Once you are in, it takes over every thought. You can't stop thinking about it. You move about the world in your free time and you're like, <laughs> huh, I, I just saw something. Wait, I need to go get my camera and yeah. or write down this idea. Mm -hmm. Has that been the case for you? Have you found yourself just being so obsessed with it, Ooh. taking over all of your thoughts? And even when you're like, gosh, I really should take a break, you're, you just can't. Yeah, I think one of the good things about moving to the UK is there's a much better work-life balance here. You know, on on average, people get, I mean, it's mandatory. They get six weeks of paid leave if you're a full-time employee. Dude, uh, when, when I worked, you know, salary jobs in the United States, I would maybe take a week out of the year and it was Christmas. Yeah. And maybe I would take a weekend out of that. So, you know, all told, I would never use my accrued vacation time. But one of, the, one of the things that I've done, and I can't decide if it's been good or bad, is I will leave my laptop at work, even though it's a laptop. I can take it home if I want to. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I need to, but I'll leave it at work and I'll go home. And um, a big part of that, too, is just structuring and planning. Again, like getting your head out of the weeds type kind of thing and being able to see an overview of things and plan out things. Uh, you and I were talking about this before we started. 
we have a calendar, a big whiteboard out there that we have everything written out for the entire month. We have sponsorships written out. We have podcasts written out. If we want to do something special, we're going to bring somebody into the studio. We have that written out and we have this, you know, we're playing catch up now because it's January, but you do have this part where you say, okay, this can be achieved. You can take real time off. And dude, I've worked on Christmas. I've worked on Christmas Eve. I've worked on all the major holidays because I've had to. And then you have this ability to plan that out and structure things in such a way that maybe it, maybe it's hiring a seasonal person, whatever it is, um, that gives you that freedom. Um, but, you know, on that note, you know, I'm saying this is somebody who's nowhere near as successful as some of those other people. You know, um, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard about, uh, have you ever heard of Matt Pat, the YouTuber that just retired? No. Gigantic. So he did the Game Theorist channel, which I think has um, over 10 million subscribers. Uh, he would do, I don't even know, like Food Theory channel, which you wouldn't think would do well. But you watch the videos and you're like, okay, I get it now. Um, I think that has over 10 million. So we've got a million subscriber plaque over there. He's got a 10 million subscriber diamond plaque. Uh, about as successful as it can get. And the guy just retired. Just At what age? Um, actually, he's 38. Wow. Yeah. Um, you got some catching up to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there, man. I, I can tell you that. Um, Tom Scott is an English YouTuber. Same thing. Over 10 million subscribers. Doesn't have a network of YouTube channels all doing that, but extraordinarily successful. Every time he uploads, it's going to do a million plus, if not, you know, in the tens of millions. He retired for the same reason, for burnout. And so I think a, a good part of that is figuring out, okay, what can you structure in such a way that allows you to take time off when you need to, allows you to go travel somewhere. You know, it's like, there were a couple times last year where it's like, I'm just going to go to Ireland. I'm just going to go and not worry about work. And I'm just going to go have fun. Uh, might even be, that. that's the difficult thing though. Moving here, most of my friends are MMA friends. Mm. Most of, even the, the, you know, the girls that I've talked to are MMA people. So you have this kind of, but uh, sometimes that's a, a bane on your entire existence. Sometimes it's the most beautiful thing. And I, I kind of like that. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It's it's like um, you're, you're almost uh, fighting with yourself. Even in the middle of me saying that sentence, you can probably hear it. But, dude, I mean, I still love it. Like, you know, I, you and I were even talking about this earlier with work-life balance. You know, a lot of times I don't watch as, uh, as much MMA in my free time. But sometimes it's like, yeah, Sean Strickland, one of the guys who's fighting in a pay-per-view this weekend. This will probably go out after that. But you know, fairly big star in the, the, the sport of MMA. I just had to watch the interview. <laughs> like I just had to, you know, the fan is always there. And it, sometimes it's just as much as me forcing myself to step out of it as it is, you know, uh, you know, wanting to, it, it's, it's, it's something that, yeah, I, I still just love it. I still just do. Yeah. Why? Oh, dude. Yeah, it comes back to that question. It's people beating <laughs> it's people beating each other up in a cage. Why? I don't know, dude. But why do you love putting the content out around people beating up in the cage? Well, so one of my early jobs, um, one of my bosses, 
I remember I wasn't even in the room for this discussion, but we were talking about going to Chicago, which was then um, a main event between TJ Dillashaw and Hennen Burrell. So if you don't know the sport, won't mean much to you, but it was for a buddy of mine's bachelor weekend, bachelor party weekend. So we had all this other stuff planned on top of that. And so it was such a big deal. And they were talking to my boss about it. And he was like, what? Jason doesn't like MMA. That doesn't make sense. That's he, he literally his words were uh, this is second hand from them telling me that's against type. I was like, okay, I guess something about me or whatever, whatever it is being college educated or university educated, as they'll say here, um, whatever it is, I guess means you can't be a fan. And so that was kind of one of my major passions is like, and that's getting harder in this sport. I will yeah. not lie to you. I, you and I could have a super geeky conversation more in depth about the sport than the scope of this podcast. But you have this other side of it. But man, like I, I love the idea of saying, you don't think this is for you. And you might be, well be right. But let me show you a little bit more about it. Because I think once you turn somebody onto it, they become big fans of it as well. Yes. And I think a big part of that does come from being a fan, not quote, uh, not not quite when it was literally banned and outlawed in the United <laughs> States. I was a little after that. But part of that is like, yeah, dude, when I was watching this sport, when I first got into it, I mean, I come from the musician world, you know, and I didn't play metal music and stuff like that. I would play like indie rock. And uh, it's not like the free love crowd or anything like that. Not necessarily. I mean, a lot of them were hipsters, but not necessarily the hipster crowd. It's kind of like you were kind of looked at like, oh, man, this guy's kind of a, a, a tough guy or whatever because he likes job. to watch this. Yeah, it kind of. I also like if you grew up in the church community as <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, so I kind of hit it. It was kind of like this weird thing mm. of like, because it was much more. I don't even know how much of a mainstream sport we can even still say it is, but it's certainly much more mainstream than it was. And yeah, I used to hide it from everybody. Yeah. And so the, I think there is a large part of that that comes from that place of you shouldn't have to hide your fandom of this. And if you're interested in it, I'll open the door for you and show you. Yeah, it's actually kind of warm and cozy in here. It's not this crazy thing. Although, yeah. Again, we could have a really geeky conversation about some of the wild things that yeah. happen in the sport that make you kind of wonder, okay, yeah, that's a little tougher of a sell. For me, I've had kind of an up and down relationship mm. with MMA the past years. When I first got into it, it was just like, oh my God, I love this. I'm eating up <laughs> everything. And every new fan kind of has that experience. Once yeah. you're in, you are in yeah. and you are obsessed and you can't look away. Yeah, yeah. But then as you start to really get into it, you realize there's kind of a dark underbelly. There's some sketchiness. There's some shady business dealings. People who work in the sport or the fighters aren't treated the way that they should. Big time. There's one dominant organization, the UFC, which because it's so dominant can kind of just do whatever it wants. It doesn't have to answer to anybody for the wrongdoing. So once you start to realize that, and all that is going on, depending on like how much you care about mm -hmm. morality and whatnot, you uh, can start to lose some of that passion for it. So I kind of have lost that uh, childlike, eyes wide open enthusiasm for it, and now have taken a yeah. step back and just like I have great respect 
for a lot of the fighters for what they do. Hmm. And I enjoy watching it and seeing athleticism and competitiveness at its absolute finest. But it is also a job for me. Yeah. And there is that side of it too, where it's like, this is just what I work in, mm. but I still enjoy watching it. I love the people I work with. I love serving the fans of the podcast that I listen to. Mm. And it's just really awesome putting out stuff that people love, mm. feel connected to. With podcasts, especially, you're going directly into earbuds. It's a different kind of relationship between listener and host that you just can't get in other mediums, including on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I love it. It's so fulfilling to me to know that people are making time in their days to for 60 to 90 minutes to spend time with us and get our thoughts. And yeah. I know when I first started just listening to podcasts in general, I was at kind of a, a low place in my life and I was depressed and I felt really mm. connected to my hosts and they were getting me through some tough days. So I always keep that in mind that there's someone out there listening to this episode of the Ringer MMA show who has absolutely nothing in their life going right for them in the moment. And this is just their escape from that. And that's why I take so much pride in my work and still love doing it so much, even though there are those times where it's like, gosh, why am I doing this? I just can't support this. That's why. Yeah. You definitely have those days where you're like, I just want to go home. Like that's, that's one of my (laughs) depressive behaviors is I, I kind of recluse up. So it's like, oh yeah, man, I just want to be alone. And that becomes like, uh, like you're describing one of those shows becomes that for you. You're like, okay, yeah, I feel better now. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully that leads into the next day even, you know, and you feel much better and you actually do want to go do something after, you know, work or whatever it is. (laughs) And that's, that's such a big thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I try not to think about that side of it too much because that feels like, oh man, that's so much weight, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And a, and a lot of fans do choose to just be mm-hmm. blissfully ignorant. Ignorance is bliss. And it's just yeah. like, I just want to watch the fights. And hey, that that's fine. Like, I'm not here to judge. Do whatever you want. It's just, that's a personal decision. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you guys um, in particular, especially when you guys were doing the Spotify live stuff, I know that's, you know, not necessarily around, but right, man, Jay. I miss that so much. Yeah. That was, that was special. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Those live chats were so much fun, fun, man. Yeah. So you surpassed 1 million subscribers within the past year. Yeah. An incredible accomplishment. What did that feel like? Man, um yeah, we were we were counting it down, man. It was it was a big thing. Cuz uh, you know, that was always our hope, you know, in terms of fandom and being a fan channel, our hope was to be the first channel that could cross that threshold and become the first MMA fan YouTube channel to do a million subscribers, you know? Um, the guys you work with, man, I absolutely looked up to, you know? Like I mentioned, Ariel Wani is as big as it gets in the sport. Um, I used to really look up to those guys and you're like, okay, that's what they are able to do, what they've been able to create is something different from what we're doing, but you can see where things can go. You can see the potential in having those inspirations. And yeah, once we hit a million subscribers, man, it was while we were in the office. So it's like this kind of serendipitous, like pinch me moment where you just, you kind of have an appreciation for everything. Cause you know, again, you know, you talk about, you know, what I was saying with my background and stuff like that. You know, when my parents divorced, my mother hadn't worked for over 20 years 
And so I lived in a trailer growing up, you know? I, I lived in a trailer for high school. <laughs> Dude, I remember having this really strange, th this really strange moment of the bus pulling down. We were like practically the last ones to get dropped off. And it was in the trailer park. And literally a girl in front of everyone asked me, I won't use the expletive that she used, but she was like, how do you get laid living here? And it was like, everybody started laughing. It was like, that's a fair point. <laughs> I just laughed with them. But, you know, you don't feel like you, with those experiences, that that is where a lot of that imposter syndrome comes from. Because you're like, I don't belong here. You know, like it, it feels, and, and, and you have to make yourself appreciate it. And moments like that, allow you to look at that, those kind of things and be able to say, okay, that's not the greatest, you know, thing in the world. You know, I'm not full of myself as a result of it or anything like that, but I've done something, you know, I've actually been able to do that. And it's a tangible thing. Even if it's just a plaque, you can't do anything nice with plaque. it. Yeah. I mean, you can put it in the background of your video, but you can't, you know, make food with it. You, <laughs> you, can't, you can't sustain your life off of it, but it is a recognition and it's a recognition from the community, most importantly, that, yeah, you you have that moment to say, yeah, this is real. This has actually happened. It's not just statistics and numbers. Here's a realization, yeah. Do you ever just sit back and once you're in the office one day and just say to yourself, I'm a kid from Tennessee. Yeah. I live in London, one of yeah. the media capitals of the world. Yeah. Making YouTube videos about combat sports. I have this office and this studio with all this nice camera equipment and microphones and this YouTube plaque and all this signed MMA memorabilia. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Do you, are you ever just like, how the heck did this happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try I tried to remind myself of that, especially, you know, like you say, uh, you know, maybe when you are feeling down and you want to watch a podcast or something like that, you do have moments like that, you know? I do think the danger to that as well, though, is you have so much rooted in that. So if things aren't, you know, maybe you're having a bad month, the revenue's not coming in the way it does, you now have bills. <laughs> you know, you have you now have other things, you know, and we've had to lay people off, mm. you know. When we came into the studio, a, a big part of it as well was moving things in-house. And, you know, obviously having a salaried staff makes a lot more sense than, you know, freelancing when you can consolidate. But, you know, there there were t at times where we had to let people go because you're like, yeah, at, at a point, you have to be able to pay the bills and you have leases that you're signed to and you have no other choice. You know, at some point it's either you have to make these difficult decisions or you're gone. You know, you, you have nothing, you know. So that's the danger of it. You know, putting too much root in the success means you can really tie yourself worth to it. Mm. The the performance and things like that and finding that separation. And I find the best way to do that, at least for me, is in other people that I've known my entire life. Like wh when I went back home for Christmas, man, that's the best recharge mm. because you're not talking to people. I mean, of course, they want to know what it's like. You know, you get a lot of the similar questions, but it's coming from, I could, this business could fail and that would not affect my relationship with this person at all. That would not affect it with my parents, my brothers, you know, my, my nieces, my nephews, my best friends, the girls I've dated, you know, whatever it is, none of that at the end of the day matters to them. And yeah, I think that's where you really find that 
And we, again, it comes back to that, you know, what I was saying earlier, we're social beings. Yeah. And when you're around people that you, you know, you trust, you love, that is so recharging. And it really, it, it separates you from the riffraff and the things that you're stressed with. So, yeah, I think that's the best possible thing for it. What have been the biggest challenges of running a business centered around YouTube? <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it is known for its volatility, but it's not nearly as volatile as some other platforms like Facebook. At one point, we were making a killing on Facebook. Really? And then all of a sudden, whenever Meta changed over to, you know, literally Zuckerberg made the Meta change, it was like massive, massive algorithm change. And you're like, all of a sudden, what we're doing is not working. You have to pivot and you have to change. Oh, interesting. But um, it mostly, you know, YouTube actually, to give them a lot of credit, has been fairly consistent for us. And I think part of that is our consistency and our upload schedule and maintaining that week over week over week. Um, so that, that's been a challenge of its own to a smaller extent. But just the other things, you know, like, you know, we're on Spotify as well. You know, we post videos there. And so there's revenue that comes from there. Um, all the podcast platforms we're on. Um, yeah, th there is Facebook. There is, you know, we forayed into TikTok. But <laughs> I mean, th that's TikTok's a whole different animal. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, there's no money in it whatsoever. Yeah. I, I, like, I, you know, I'm not super open with the financials, the business side of things, but I'll tell you this, we uh, had, uh, you know, um, a short that blew up on YouTube and YouTube pays a little better than TikTok. We made 30 bucks off of a million views on a short there. And it's like, it's, it's like one of those necessities that you have to do because the algorithm likes that, right? Yeah. And I know there's all this talk of, of course, if you look into it, don't think of it as an algorithm, think of it as an audience. Hmm. That's true and not true. You know, there, there's the part of it where, yeah, you should be thinking of, I'm making this content for someone. You're thinking of a person at the end of that content pipeline, the end user, right? But there's also the, sh the shorts and things like that that you have to do to make YouTube happy and right. to want to continue suggesting your content. There's all kinds of stuff on the back end. You know, it's like you get a <laughs> demonetized video right. or whatever it is. So you do have to play along with that. And yeah, it is a whole different beast. Shorts are wildly different. Yeah. Let's get into the nitty gritty here for, for YouTube and for people who want to create on YouTube. That backend stuff, which a lot of people hear backend stuff and it's like, I just want to make stuff. I don't really want to think about all of that. But all of that really mm -hmm. matters and can really make or break your your videos and their performance or or your business. So yeah. what would you say on the back end? What is the the most important stuff that people need to nail? The number one metric of everything, watch time. That's what you want. Uh, and particularly, you do want to be uploading videos that are over eight minutes long. And there's a very sp specific reason for that. One is you get to put more ads on it. That's that's a blatant you know, kind of thing. YouTube is owned by Google, run by AdSense. AdSense is the platform that you sign up to get ads run on your video. And that's how they make their money. Not just you, they wanna make money. So they wanna suggest channels that follow that blueprint. So if you're going over eight minutes, that's really good. And you want to make sure, like a golden, a golden number is seven to eight minutes that the average view watch time is. Luckily, we're a little over that. 
And that's something that you really want more than anything. And so there's that part of it where YouTube wants it for the AdSense, but they just want people to stay on their website because then there's more opportunity to watch more ads. And the more traffic time, the more numbers that they have, the more they can then sell to those advertisers. So that's a huge, huge thing. If there's anything that you focus on, no matter what video type it is, as long as it's long form content, if it's a podcast, if it's an essay, if it's top 10 list, like what we do, you want to make sure people are sticking around, yeah. that they're watching for a long time. So how do you get to that? seven to eight minute watch time how do you how do you make appealing stuff to to grab the attention for that long in an era where we are only <laughs> willing to give Dude, less time yeah yeah well hopefully it you know it that is the part where it does come down to the audience you're not thinking of a statistic on the other end of there you're hopefully thinking of someone that maybe looks like yourself and hopefully yourself is uh, reflective of that audience. And you can say, all right, you, and you have to be kind of brutal. You have to be able to say, okay, what I just wrote is boring. I need to rewrite that. You have to be able to say to yourself, and, and you see this- Which is in, difficult to do. Oh my God, yeah. And, and you see this in music all the time, like where I know, I know so many musicians that are incredible musicians, for instance, and they'll write a song and I'm just like, dude, you don't like that. You like that you created that and you did something different from what you would maybe normally listen to, but that's not the kind of content you would consume. And if it's not, then you're just kind of proud of yourself for doing something new, but you have to be able to think of, and you know, th there's all kinds of, if you're trying to do it for a business, if you're just trying to do it for yourself, maybe that exploration is all you need. And that is a good enough reason. But if you are trying to do it as a business, then you absolutely have to think of it that way. It's like, okay. And you, you also have to separate, okay, I'm this audience, this hypothetical, I'm making content for me that hopefully translates to other people. But then there's also that aspect of, am I right? <laughs> you know, like, and you can really get yourself into a, you know, a tailspin with that, <laughs> but is it, hopefully over time you recognize what works for you and what works for your audience. And if you're looking at it like a Venn diagram where the, those two overlap and what's the best version that you can get. And sometimes, and I do plenty of times, I make deliberate choices to say, you know what, this is a little bit more for me. Mm. But you also have to say, man, it's like, again, the musician analogy, you've got people that have in some ways paid money, obviously on YouTube, they're watching ads. So they're kind of waiting for your content, even though it is free, uh, or they're using ad blockers and it's slowing down because <laughs> of that whole war between uh, the platform and ad blockers. Um, you're, you're asking of them what is, I think, inarguably the most valuable thing ever, and that is their time, you know? One resource you don't get back. Yeah, yeah, it, it is absolutely finite. It is never coming back. It is gone once you spend it. And hopefully you're, you're considering that from a compassionate perspective, you know? For, the, for them, you know, they, they deserve to be selfish. I'm selfish when I'm on the platform. I'm going to say, I want to watch this. I don't want to watch this. Uh, it, sometimes you want to watch something to support somebody. Sure, that is absolutely a thing that happens. But generally speaking... You're going to say, I'm interested in this topic. I'm going to watch this video. And if it's not good, I'm going to click off the video. So you do have to, 
I'm definitely an optimist, but you have to be, you have to put that realist hat on as much as you can, you know? So the watch time, retention time really matters most because the longer people watch your video, A, YouTube will reward you because they want people spending time and staying on the platform. And then on top of that, they will reward you by recommending your videos to other people who might not otherwise have come across it by searching and yep. that's really where where the virality of youtube all all comes absolutely into play. yeah it's like a, there's something called a click-through rate right yes. and click-through rate is essentially and you know this uh just explaining this for anybody who might not know is yeah click-through rate is how often does somebody see this and click on it uh versus not you know and it's as simple as that what's a good click-through rate the lower end, I would say, is about 5%. Um, and I'm not sure exactly the the full metric on that. It, you would expect me to know that, but I don't. Um, 5% is kind of on the lower end. 10% is on the higher end. Um, and I, what I think that is every thousand is shown to. And based on that, if you're at a higher rate like that, oh, yeah, they're yeah. popping that off. you know. And anything above that, I mean, imagine if you're getting 50%. Your video is probably doing 60 oh, million wow. views if you're doing that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess that would probably be, you could argue that's number one, but I I think I, so like my steroids video, for instance, what, what I did was a video that totally went out of the scope of just MMA. And it was just, again, it, it was one of those ones where I just knew it would do well, even though it was really following down in my interest. Um, and it, there was a bit of a leap of a faith where I didn't know where that overlap on the Venn diagram really, truly was, but I knew if I put forth this amount um, of effort, even if they don't click on that click through rate, you know, they're there when you see a thumbnail, that's what the click through rate is your choice to click it. Right. Just to kind of step back there and make sure that's clear. I knew that when people watch that, that they would really enjoy it, or at least I hope so, really falling in my direction as opposed to falling straight business, you know? And yeah, that video did terrible the first <laughs> week it went up and it felt horrible because, you know, 100K views is generally considered successful for our regular videos. Um, our podcasts, we call them podcasts. They're, they're more podcasts for members. They're discussion pieces that are edited to about eight to 10 minutes. Uh, for the average viewer. And those are usually 50,000 views is my metric of success for that. So 100,000 is really what I wanted for this, you know, just to kind of delineate our content there. It was doing like 60,000 views in two days, that steroids video. And now it's at almost a million, you know? Um, And that went up in April or so. And it's just steadily, steadily, Mm. steadily climbed. So the click-through rate on that video was actually quite low. It was around that 5%. But over time, people realized the content here is good, and that's where the word of mouth kicks in. Mm. That's where somebody shares it. And the other thing, um, not just that, is, of course, that number one metric, the watch time. YouTube says people are watching this for 40 minutes on average or whatever it is. I think think it's probably closer to 25 minutes. Um, So 40 minutes was a way long overshoot. 25 is still very impressive. Yeah. For, I mean, that's almost half the video, you know? Um, And so people are sticking around and that's what YouTube wants. Again, we're saying currency, literal currency, 
on its surface is the number one thing. But again, time is the most valuable thing, which means people will then, that's everything. Everything is off the back of that. Yeah. If people stick around, they watch that video, they'll watch the ads. So everything trickles down from there, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's um, a perfect example of making a choice for you and kind of having that boldness. I mean, that was really going outside the scope. We're an MMA channel. Yeah. The history of America and steroids is the title of that video. I'm, I'm talking <laughs> about like, you know, Ben Johnson and his steroid scandal in the 1980s and how crazy big of a thing that was, knowing most people don't know what that is and hopefully hooking them in my intro and everything else leads them on, you know, so title thumbnail yeah description yeah tags what's the most important of all of that backend stuff man there, there's always an ongoing raging debate it feels like about tags um yeah right the way i've had it described to me by people that are much smarter on the analytics end than i am is you know joe rogan for instance as controversially as he is he does really well on the platform, right? Yeah. Undoubtedly. Obviously, he's more Spotify, but he posts clips onto YouTube. And every single time he uploads, without fail, it's going to do a couple million views, right? And so the way I've had it described is, yeah, Joe Rogan is probably not going to follow best practices right. in terms of, yeah, putting in the metadata, the yeah. tags, you know, the boring stuff. And On the it, podcast side of things, everything he does is yeah. counterintuitive to what I would advise someone to do. <laughs> yeah, he's just, there's a cult of personality or whatever it is you want to say at some point that has just superseded everything else and it just doesn't matter at that yeah. point. But yeah, the, there all that stuff does matter to a degree. Um, but yeah, with, with tags, I would put it at a really low level. We have... Um, auto tags that we put on in every single one, you can put three into your description. We do that. Um, I don't know how much it helps. I don't see a huge difference in it, but it's like, hopefully what it is, is it's building on top of each other. Even if it's 1% more views, sure, that's 1% more views. And over time, that 1% adds up, right? Um, but in general, with your thumbnail, hopefully you're putting some work into that. I think it's extraordinarily important because like I was saying, watch time is probably number one. Click-through rate is probably number two. Um, Click-through rate, probably in the beginning might even be number one because you don't have uh, an audience yet. You know, you're getting 300 views on your video. That's not going to get you eligible for monetization in the first place. Good luck. So what you you hopefully are doing is attracting people with that and that becomes much more important in the beginning. The thumbnail. Yeah, because when you have a million subscribers, X amount of those people are always going to show up no matter yeah. what. They're, you know, the notification squad is what they would say in the comments, right? They're there, they see the notification, they immediately click. And so in the beginning, it probably, if you're a new YouTuber, probably is your number one thing is, okay, just think basic level, what can I do to attract an audience and the easiest thing is going to be a title and thumbnail. And hopefully your video delivers on that. But yeah, uh, some graphic design is certainly going to help. Uh, I've seen people get around it. Actually, literally, <laughs> Tom, uh, my business partner, he will use After Effects to create his thumbnail, which is crazy to me because Photoshop is literally a right. design suite and he's using a video editing program. But does it matter? No. So if you're using one of those services Honestly, I don't use any of them. So I'm trying to remember the name of them. Uh, like Adobe has an online platform. There's Canva. A lot of people use Canva. 
Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Platforms like that, doesn't matter how you're making it. Just at the end of the day, if hopefully you can kind of study of what is working on the platform, you could try to replicate that. Um, I think some things are going to work for you in the beginning and some things are not. Like what a lot of people will do is like, oh man, Mr. Beast puts his face on every thumbnail. Yeah. That, But that's because he's Mr. Beast. So if you're a new YouTuber, I would not recommend that at all because no one is clicking on your face to right. see you. There might be uh, an element of maybe you're <laughs> insanely gorgeous of a person right. and maybe there's an element there. Um, but in general, yeah, focus on the content. What do they want to see? You have to sidestep yourself and say, I might be the architect. I might be the, you know, the person, the storyteller here. But at the end of the day, they're there for the subject matter. And over time, that can shift. And yeah, then maybe you are that person that puts your face in the thumbnail. But I do see that a lot on those YouTube channels. That That is really interesting, is reaching a level of success and then seeing all those YouTube channels that are like, this is how you become successful right. in 2024. And most of the time, actually, you know, I think it's fairly good advice and I try to heed some of that. But yeah, you'll just see them falling into the same kind of tropes of like, yeah, put yourself in the thumbnail. It's like, no. So if you're not putting yourself on the thumbnail, then what are you putting there? Um, so let's say you're talking about video games or movies, right? Hopefully you're putting something in there. So, you know, it can be as simple as, you know, uh, fair use when it comes to video games is wide open. I mean, you can play the whole game, right? right. Hopefully you're using uh, a scene of that gameplay that is particularly interesting. Um, hopefully you're using something that, Whatever it is, you know, um, in Fortnite, maybe you want a battle royale. I don't know. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you want to show that whatever you can do to show that moment. And that's that's where it gets really difficult, though. Your subject matter, you should hopefully be finding a niche as well. Because if you're going to play the Fortnite game, uh, literally uh, and figuratively, if you're going to play that game of uploading content about that game, you've really got to stand out because the market saturation is tremendously overblown. So you, you've really got to be thinking from the beginning, how do I stand out? Yeah. How many people have posted a victory in that game? You know, <laughs> probably no, with no exaggeration, hundreds of thousands would literally probably be, be, be true of that game where someone had done that. So that's a, t that's a tougher route to go. I think Hopefully, you know the subject matter and you know your audience from being a consumer first. Yeah. I mean, think of any job you take, right? You, they call it shadowing, right? You, it, the most, even the most remedial job where you're just working a cash register at Chuck E. Cheese, I don't know, whatever it is, your first job at 16 years old, whatever it is, you are learning from someone first. So, preferably, you're going to become a student as much as you can. And you say, all right. I'm going to make a, a video about video games. I'm going to make them, let's say, The Last of Us, you know, uh, the, the, that also ironically turned into a TV series. I'm going to make something about that. Okay, what are people making content on that currently? What's working for them? And how can you differentiate yourself? And that's a much harder question. There, there, there are templated answers that I can give you all day to say, oh, yeah, 
yeah, you want to throw it in Photoshop and you use the camera raw filter and you use the effect sliders to bring up the clarity and maybe you'll bring some lightness and you'll add some color to that to really make it pop off the thumbnail. There are technical things like that that I can tell you. That's a, a real legitimate thing that I use every day in Photoshop. Yeah. But that makes no bearing on if your content hasn't been thought through and you haven't thought of your audience first, you know? And what you would want to see, again, it comes back to that, you know? There's a person at the end of that click and hopefully it's some something like you and you can find that, you know, that Venn diagram crossover, you know? So let's just say that you were advising uh, a podcaster <laughs> who uh, is just visiting in london and is talking with his friend uh jackson about <laughs> mma and youtube and whatnot and they yeah. did a 90 minute two-hour podcast what what would you put on that thumbnail just you know asking oh man that is so much tougher to be honest i don't have a great answer for you on that you know well podcasting on youtube is still you know in the infancy stages sure um and there's only so many people who do it well yeah it, it's hard the common YouTube advice is kind of reverse engineer. Start with your title and your thumbnail first and then make a video based on that. That's what I hear a lot. With podcasts, podcast, you can't really think about it that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of have an idea going into a conversation what you want it to be about, but it's a conversation. So it's going to go a bazillion different directions that you couldn't plan for. So podcasting on YouTube is... It's fun. I've yeah. I've been experiencing like a little like a little degree of success recently to the point where like I feel like I'm getting it. Like yeah. my videos recently haven't been failing. Like I'm past the stage of like it's still like listen. I I have like two hundred fifty subscribers or something uh, at the point that we're talking, but I'm not getting like forty views anymore. Like it's now like consistently hitting triple digits, which I view as a win for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what you're you are going down an objectively much harder road. It is hard, yeah. Um, and I think what you're also doing though, it's like you know, I don't think I'm anybody special, but you know, there is that thing where yeah, you can actually ask somebody who's made it on YouTube. We said that's a really great thing that you can do, and you're obviously connected. I mean, the kind of things that you've done in your life are very impressive objectively. So you know, obviously we're in the same room. I'm glazing you up, obviously, but. <laughs> There, there is this part of it. Yeah, you actually worked at ESPN, dude. Like, so your connections, I do think that what you're doing actually makes the most possible sense that it could because you're trying to find people that have actually done these things, found success in it, and you have those connections so you can pull out that Rolodex and say, oh yeah, I'm going to meet up with so-and-so. I mean, I mean, legitimately, you know, it's like for anybody that doesn't know who Ariel Wani is, it does not get bigger than that yeah. in the sport. It's not even close. It's yeah. like, there's not even like, um, you know, maybe Luke Thomas was like a close second, um, or maybe you could still consider, and we're friends with Luke Thomas. I, I adore guy. what that guy makes in terms of content and all that kind of stuff. Bit of a cynical asshole. No, no, he's, he's amazing. <laughs> um, we went and saw him live uh, last time you were here. So, but, you know, we're talking, I think he has on his personal YouTube channel, maybe he has 50,000 subscribers. I don't want to get too much into one of your close friends' personal finances, but I know objectively he's made many times of what someone like in that second place journalistic spies made. So the thing is like your work life experience is the best thing. That's the best asset. 
because you have made those connections with people, those long lasting connections. And I think you're on uh, the long road. I said it was the hard road, but it's also the long road. But I think because you have those connections, you build that up over time. I think people will buy into that. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and that's the, the path I'm choosing to go on. Like I know the, there's easier routes to success on YouTube than the one I'm taking, but yeah, Honestly, like, you know, like you said, it shines through when you're not passionate about the thing that you're talking about. There's certain there's certainly other things that I that I'm interested in mm -hmm. that I could make videos on, but it wouldn't last me that long in terms of my interest. Whereas this, like, yeah, at the core of this, this is a conversation. I would have this conversation with you if we weren't recording it and having microphones yeah. on. My absolute favorite activity in the world, Jason. Is just going to a coffee shop or going to oh, a dude. bar and just one on one. Yeah. I I don't really like group settings as much because mm. I I don't like surface level conversation. I need depth. I need to know Let's everything. I need the trauma. I need the backstories. <laughs> I need the goals and the yeah. the hopes and dreams and the lost loves. I need all of it. So that's why I love podcasting, and that's why I'm just gonna like I I've really within the past few months realized just how much I love this. It's so funny you say that because you know I've talked about music so much and that being you know such a pivotal you know place as an artist where I've come from. You know, I've started playing when I was 13 years old. Um, but what I would look forward to more than the show sometimes was the time afterwards because mm. you, you knew you just played a great show. And you're going to go have some uh, good time with friends. And obviously that's a little different from what you're describing. You're describing a one-on-one, -on -one. but yeah, like that conversationalist type kind of approach to life is something. Yeah. I I'm on the exact same page. I mean, you and I, as you're saying that literally did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was that? Uh, like six or seven months ago, we went to a pub in Clapham Junction is oh, where yeah. we went to in uh, London here. Yeah. On the exact same page. That's the thing, you know, it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not currently in a relationship right now or anything like that, but I've had what should have been bad dates that were amazing because we still had a good conversation. Oh, know? yeah. I tell everyone I'm the best first dater that there's ever been because <laughs> it's literally just a podcast for me. It's like I've I've got stock questions for you and then I just listen and then that leads to a whole bunch of offshoots. Now, third date when like, where's this going? Like, I'm bad at that, but first dates, I'm your guy. You're like, I'm going to Argentina next week. <laughs> like, where, where did you go after? Did you go to Hawaii last yeah. time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you definitely travel a lot. Where, where all have you been I'm since su then? I'm such a flight risk that that's anytime I'm on dates, it's I'm like, yeah, I like, kind of move around a lot. And they're like, so why should I keep dating you? <laughs> that's a great question. I think that honesty is really good, though. I think people, that's endearing, you know, when they find out, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just here for a couple of days and I just want to meet somebody. Yeah. I think people really like that. Yeah, it's fun. You're not leading somebody on. Oh, so you went to Hawaii? I went to Hawaii after that. And then I'd actually gotten a bit tired <laughs> of uh, of traveling so much yeah. from the sense of... And this sounds really ungrateful. Like, everything... Every city in Europe was just starting to look the same to me. Oh. Paris might as well be London. London might as well be Dublin. And Dublin might as well be Edinburgh. <laughs> and extrapolate that all across Europe. So traveling just kind of like lost its luster for me because I've been doing it for a couple years now to the point where like I love getting out of my comfort zone. My comfort zone became getting up and moving. Mm. It became adjusting really quickly. It became, all right, move to a new place, get a gym, get a yoga studio, get a membership to this. And then before you leave, cancel that, cancel that, move to the new place, find this, find this, where it's like, it became really routine for me. Yeah. What became hard was being stationary and 
trying to build a community and make <laughs> long lasting friendships and like actually be in a relationship you can settle down in. Right. So that's kind of, I've kind of gone yeah. back the complete opposite way where I have the reverse problem where people are so stationary and scared to take a chance to move somewhere. Whereas I'm like more scared to be stationary. So right, right now I'm in a period where I'm trying to be stationary. So I live in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire again, which I've huh. lived in the past. Huh. I've been there for uh, about seven, eight months. And about three, two months ago, I hit a period where I was like, I kind of want to go. <laughs> I want to leave. I want to, the nomad life is calling to me. Hmm. And uh, I made all the arrangements to do that. But then as I really thought about it, I was like, you know what? Stay. You've got, you've actually got something going on here. You've got a little community at your gym and your yoga studio, and people know your order at the coffee shop down the street. Yeah. You know your spots. Mm hmm. So I'm kind of digging the stationary life right now. And who knows? I might pick up the nomad thing again. If I were to get some great job offer in New York City or London, I would have to entertain that for sure. But as far as I'm a remote <laughs> employee doing what I'm doing, like I, I'm, I'm liking the stationary life. Yeah, you just reminded me so much of being at the end of uh, going to university in uh, Tennessee or whatever. And, you know, like I was saying, I was involved in so many different things. And so you'd be in one spot and then you'd walk over somewhere else. Obviously, that's a much more, much more localized version of what you're saying. But just hustling, bustling, moving around, you kind of get into that lifestyle. And then I remember when I graduated, I was like, you mean there's no homework, there's no clubs I have to go, you know, there's no roles and responsibilities that I have uh, as part of that anyway. And it's like, what do I do with my time now? Like, this is so weird. You know, it's like, I've never been that dude that's like, all right, let's just binge watch a Netflix show. Obviously, Couldn't that, be me. that'll happen sometimes, you know, it's like, I am a big Stranger Things fan, but I've never been that dude that's just like scrolling through for Netflix looking for a new series. That's just never, ever happened because the time just isn't there, you know? Um, but it's also, I, I don't know. I might have some sort of I, uh, undiagnosed ADD or something because it's <laughs> like, I need to be doing something. Yes. And so if I'm just sitting there, sure, there are the exceptions. Like I mentioned Stranger Things. Um, I don't know why I'm mentioning that show so many times. But yeah, sometimes you can kind of get into something. But in general, it's like, I'm not doing anything. It's it, this weird, like almost physical sensation. Of yeah. Like, yeah. I'm kind of bored. I don't know. Maybe I don't know if that was always true. And I, I've just become so inundated in that lifestyle. Is that a smartphone era type kind of thing? 2007 iPhone comes out and beyond type kind of mentality or not. But yeah. The way of life that you just described to me um, speaks to me because I'm similar. I like doing things. Yeah. My kind of just philosophy in life in general is what if today were your last day on earth, which Ooh. is very possible. Mm. And and honestly, like why I am the way I am today and why I put out the stuff I do and why I move about the life in the way that I do is that um, I lost my best friend in 2012 in a car crash. Mm. She was killed by a drunk, high speeding driver. Um, and it was so sudden. Yeah, I never anticipated it obviously i saw her the night before it happened she and i were in a little this was in high school we were in like a little high school squabble over stupid stuff at the time oh, wow and that's how our friendship this like amazing beautiful friendship yeah. ended yeah. and so i've had to live with that yeah. forever that we were i was being stupid and i didn't get to tell her one more time how much i loved her Jeez. and so 
I had this experience happen in my formative years where I know life is so precious. It can literally go like that. I think back to Kobe Bryant and how sudden that was. Like there's these little moments in your life that are teaching moments, hopefully, that happen for a reason. I do believe these things have happened for a reason. Mm. I literally have this thought every single day. What if today were my last day on earth? Is this how you would want to spend it? So that's why when you say, I've never been one to binge watch Netflix or to spend a lot of time just <laughs> loafing around, not doing anything. Mm. That's why. It's because I don't want that to be my last day on earth. Mm. I have I have people say to me all the time, Troy, how do you get so much done? How how are you so productive? Mm. You write this Substack piece, you put out this podcast, you make this podcast for Spotify, you make this podcast for this person, and you work out, and you publish a book, and you read, and you walk, and you spend outside, and you travel. How do you do all of this? Yeah. Because I live with such intention and purpose Mm. every day. I don't waste time. Because like you said, it is the most important thing we have. And too many of us are not cognizant of that. And that's kind of my message that I'm trying to beat into people. You have one life. Stop wasting so much of it. Yeah. What does relaxation look look like for you? Relaxation for me is going to a coffee shop. Oh, yeah. Reading. Yeah. Sometimes in silence or it's journaling. Mm. Or it's having a conversation with a friend. Yeah, dude, it's yeah. a walk in nature, in the woods, on the beach. Mm. It's watching the stars. It's being connected to nature or connected to other people. Mm. Um, but no, I, I'm not just gonna like sit on the couch <laughs> and <laughs> and not do anything. Like that's just not me. Yeah, uh, that's great, man. That's a great philosophy. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's really interesting and kind of connected to that story of, you know, having someone pass away, you know, luckily my dad's made it through it, but, you know, in the last year found out, you know, he had cancer. It's supposedly in remission. My dad is a massive optimist. So where it's like, can I really trust that? His wife, uh, you know, my, my stepmother, she insists that that is correct. So it's like, okay, good. Um, but you do have this... I remember in my 20s, there was always this idea of like, oh, yeah, I just need to push, 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 push. And eventually you're going to get to this moment where, yeah, I figured out something. And sure enough, I'm here, done that, found something, and it's a passion. You know, I get to do it every day. But then there's also this moment of like, oh, fuck. I wasn't thinking about anyone else in that. Mm. Because then you have this realization and, and, you know, it's tough not to get emotional about it, but, you know, your parents, you know, like the the people that raised you and, you know, like, and then you start to look back at some of those friendships that you used to have that are no longer there because you've moved on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, I haven't had too many, you know, close friends, you know, I haven't, I haven't had to go through some of those things that you've described there. But yeah, you just have this realization of it's like, it, it's kind of like you're getting over this hill and you've done something and then you you look back and you have that realization of, yeah, my, yeah, my parents are dying. You know, it's such a tough yeah. thing to come to terms with. I've been thinking about that. D- does any part of you feel guilty about being here? Oh yeah, on the other side of the oh, world dude. when your parents are going through it back home. I have to chill out, you know, because um, my, you know, my dad in particular, he's the one that's been having more of the health problems. He had a stroke, you know, um, back in April, and it was like, oh, I'm packing up, going. And then uh, we wanted to go watch Kansas City Chiefs game because he lives in the area. Um, we weren't able to, but I was able to go see him and spend a couple more weeks in September uh, when the season started back up. And then I saw him for Christmas. And there is this part of me where it's like, 
that is an absurd amount of money internationally spending to go and fly out for those things. No one else is subsidizing that for me. I'm <laughs> spending it. And it's like, but if I was there, it would be so much more feasible, like in, in terms of time, in terms of money, anything you can think of. And I could just do it all the time. And so, dude, I, yeah, I'm, and we're in a five-year lease here. So mm. I'm stuck in between that because we're into two years of that. So I've got at least three more years here. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever really thought about that, of the idea of like, and you, you have to, are my parents going to live that long, you know? And am I okay with that decision? And it's almost, you know, it's one of those things where you're almost like, man, I'm almost rather not thinking that, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? And I, I've never been super close, you know, with my parents. My parents are good, loving parents, but, you know, they're hyper-religious and that comes into every conversation. So that, but but you still love them. They're still your parents, you know, and you're still happy to spend time with them and you know they appreciate you. And uh, yeah, man, it, it's, it, it is really, really difficult because- all this time I'm here, it is possible to do both if I'm in the same country on a much more one-on-one -on -one attentive level. And I'm struggling with that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's probably one of the things of the last year that I've had to come to, or at least start, I don't know, kind of fighting with myself in my mind over the last year more than anything is... Yeah, you know, you've got your friendships, you got your stupid stuff. Does this video do well? And then exactly what you're talking about of, you know, there, there, there's the thinking of I'll die tomorrow. And then there's the like, well, what if those that you love die tomorrow? And that's that's a really tough thing to deal with. And uh, yeah, I don't have my head fully wrapped around it. It gives me a tremendous amount of anxiety. Absolutely. And uh, I don't think there is a good answer for it at this point. We'll see. You know, um, I'll just try to make every available opportunity to take care of that and, you know, see them, call them, whatever it is, you know, so. So how much longer do you think you'll, you'll be in London for? You've got three years, <sighs> then you're up for a visa soon. Yeah. There, you know, there is thoughts, you know, maybe that Vegas idea does come back around. That is certainly much more of a, a pivotal question at this stage. What do the next three years look like? And obviously the next five and 10 um, and I, I definitely think no matter what, I'll end up back in the States. You know, there's, there's a novelty, right. uh, obviously you understand that as somebody who likes to travel, there's a novelty of experiencing culture. And there's obviously a real lifelong thing that you take away from that. You understand how people experience life and culture, the way they do their things versus the way you always done it. Maybe the way you've done it wasn't necessarily the right way. And you learn from other people and you take all that in, you know, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, man, like, I don't know if it is the same for you because you do travel as much as you do, but home is home, man. Like the 20 plus, uh, you know, relationships I've had with, you know, people outside of my family, they're all in the same area. They all live there. And um, you do have that centering whenever you go back. But <laughs> that's the great thing about being here. You know, it's like, uh, obviously, I don't want to give too many location details, but you were talking about looking out at the street uh, from our windows and just being like, this just looks so pretty. And to uh, an English person, that's just, oh yeah, whatever, you know, it's just <laughs> a road, whatever. 
Uh, but for us, there's that novelty. So there's that adventure, you know? Yes. And one of the things, you know, I feel tremendously, you want to talk about imposter syndrome, doing commentary for MMA events. <laughs> oh, is something I've started doing. That was not a goal of mine. <laughs> that was something that somebody had asked me to do on a whim. And they're like, can you do the next one? I was like, are you sure? <laughs> and they've asked me to do more since then. And it's like, okay, this makes me uncomfortable. There's a part of me that likes that. And that's the part of me that wants to do it. But it's also the travel, you know, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I get to travel up to Liverpool and see the Northern side, uh, you know, spend six or seven hour, you know, journey going up North and seeing a different part of the country. You've been to Scotland, you know, been, uh, Wales is the only one I haven't been to, but there's that, that newness and that adventure. So I guess that is more the selfish side of the answer. That's being here and having that novelty of experience everywhere you go just feels like, I don't know what's going to happen here. You have that in the States, but that you don't have the novelty of it, you know? What do you enjoy most about living in London? A big thing for me that I've got to get more of a balance on, but it is work. It is absolutely work. You know, work-life balance is massively important, but dude, like, that's what I moved here to do, and I'm doing it. And so for me, it's just being here with the guys, you know, like uh, John Gooden, uh, UFC commentator on the, the London side of things, the English side of things. Um, we had a beer with him yesterday. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so cool. But you, you have that, but then on a more granular level, it's just ordering your coffee and talking to somebody and they want to know what it's like in America. And you're like, what's it like for you? You know, right. that cultural exchange is a massive part of it, you know? So I think that that novelty in general of just meeting people and understanding what it, 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 it sounds almost kind of boring if I view it objectively, but I just love it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, this is how you do your laundry here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't actually, that is the weirdest thing, man. It's like uh, coming from America, everybody has a dryer. If you don't have a dryer, something is wrong. Yeah. In the UK, you do not have dryers. And I'm sure you've realized that from- And your washing machine is in the kitchen. Yeah, it's like, what? <laughs> um, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the light switches are on the outside of the bathroom, not the inside. So right. you're like looking for it. And then uh, you've got switches to turn the power on so yes. that you can charge your phone. <laughs> uh, that's Just actually some... one of the things where it's like, that's actually kind of genius. That's brilliant. I wish we did that. Why don't we do that? I feel yeah. like that's saving energy in some way. I don't know if it actually is, but it sounds cool. There's so many little things yeah. to that answer. Can we get the Henry vacuum? Like, why don't we have that? <laughs> the vacuum with the smiley face? What are we oh, doing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we uh, Unfortunately, we don't have one of those here. No, but, you got yeah, it. It's everywhere here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the novelty at the end of the day is enough for me. And then the bigger life goals, the career goals, they're all here as well. So that's the biggest thing is I'm doing what I want to do with like-minded people. They're all after the same goal. And we get to enjoy that together. Last question. Sure. What is the goal? What is the goal? Jeez. Talking about existential question. What is the goal? To do, because uh, uh, what, what's a really strange thing, particularly about, you know, the space that you and I are in, you're in it through several different modes and mediums and, you know, channels, literally and figuratively, there, <laughs> literally YouTube channels, as well as, you know, different modes of going through it. But it's a weird statistical thing. You know, I, I find myself asking myself that all the time because it's like there are numbers that I see in analytics. And every once in a while, you'll have those moments like when the UFC came here and put on an event in March of last year. We brought over some of the guys that work in the States 
and we went to the show and, uh, you know, some of our mutual friends were there and there were fans that were coming up to us. And, you know, in this particular line of work, it's like you, when I, I would not consider myself YouTube famous at, at the <laughs> least, cause we're mainly a faceless channel. Right. That's the truth of it. But it was shocking how many people did actually recognize us at that London show. And maybe it was because we were a group together. It just became more obvious, but, um, there was that like real connection there. It was like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, these aren't just numbers. These are actual people. And uh, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But I, man, I struggle with that question all the time because what is success? What is it? You know, it's like um, I'm somebody that understands the value of a dollar or a pound now, I guess, as somebody that, you know, lived in a trailer, uh, had shitty jobs. You know, I worked for a moving service that only lasted about a month that was full of like criminals. Like people were talking about how they were outrunning the cops for a speeding ticket because they're on a motorbike and they could figure their way around about it. And just, it's kind of terrible. You know what I mean? Like you have, you have all of that in the back of your mind and you know what all that means. And so there is the success and to enjoy that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think we're always striving, you know, it's that the idea, it's like, it's not happiness. It's the pursuit of happiness. There, there's happiness that you can experience in the moment, but you're always striving for something else. And I wrestle with that question a lot. It's like, well, what else? What do you, what do you need? start another youtube channel what is enough hire is more a, people is a very important question for people to ask themselves i think yeah it's like uh it's always insatiable isn't it <laughs> like, yeah i don't know i don't have a good answer for that i i just know i i guess if i were to go back to it, the people-centric thing the social being thing hopefully you're creating relationships with people and you're meeting new people along the way it's like no i would not be having a beer with john gooden you know um you know, we've met every major fighter in this country, with the exception of Michael Bisbing, who says he's coming over, the first UFC champion ever. Um, yeah, uh, those experiences, you know, and they're through living here. You know, Leon Edwards is currently the champion in the UFC at 170 pounds. And uh, we've, I've been able to interview him, you know, it's like little things like that. So I guess it is those experiences more than anything. That's why I moved here. I could easily do this with much less headache back in my home office at home. You know, I could have done that, but you don't get anything there. There's no people. Mm -hmm. There's nobody a part of that. There's no meaning in that. Uh, it is just the analytics at that point because you're not sharing it with anybody. So yeah, I guess <laughs> I'm exploring this as much as I am answering it. You know what I mean? I guess it is the experiences. That's the why. I think when it all comes down to it, when you're on your deathbed, you're going to look back and remember the experiences the most. And that's why I implore everyone to have as much experiences as you can. Stop overthinking. Just say yes to things and worry about all the minutia later. Stop freaking yourself out and like, and just go for it. You know, if you want to start a YouTube channel in 2024, yeah, it's hard, but go for it. Yeah. That's what you want to do. Great answer, man. Yeah, fantastic. Jason, thank you for being here, for allowing me to be here. Keep up the great work. I expect to see another plaque, <laughs> uh, 10 million subscriber <laughs> plaque there. And like, I don't know, maybe next year. Can you make that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've noticed like, I don't know if that will happen. And that's not a knock on you. It's because I've noticed kind of a trend just within MMA. It oh, sure. It's it's tapped out. Like there's a certain threshold for MMA fans. And I think it's like 
1.5 million. It's like I look at all the big channels and it's kind of like that's just kind of the MMA fan base that watches stuff on YouTube. Well, Ariel was talking about it. Uh, no, it wasn't Ariel. It was um, maybe it was Ariel that was talking about it. Um, I, I know uh, several people have talked about this, but you look at so we're on the cusp of a major UFC event, yeah. major milestone, UFC 300. And you and I were talking about before great card so far, but what is it lacks that a lot of people have been criticizing, which is a legitimate criticism, although I don't necessarily share a lot of it, is the idea that where's the big star? Where's the the you know the star on top of the tree the the you know the icing on the cake where is that and you compare that with UFC 200 there were so many options you know Brock was you know just before his 40s so he was still able to compete he did come back John Jones was active in his biggest most heated rivalry with Cormier that had disastrous results but you know some of the biggest stars we've ever seen Connor was active at the time. And he was actively in his rivalry with Nate Diaz, who probably became the number stu- number two star in the promotion because of that rivalry. Um, I mean, there was just so many big stars active at one time. And there are big stars, sort of, but not on that level right, right now. Where's that next star coming from? And I think we're kind of, we're at that kind of level for a lot of people where it's, they're waiting for the next one, or maybe they're moving on. There, yeah. there is, uh, Luke Thomas has talked about this, a five-year cycle in the sport. Yeah. People, they kind of cycle out because their star retires, their favorite fighter retires. Right. So you kind of, just like you in 2017, MMA on point got such a big start because of the circumstances at the time, McGregor, yeah. Mayweather, kind of need another event like that if you're ever to, you know, sniff like, 10 million subscribers <laughs> you need something that really catches the imaginations of everyone can sean o'malley do that i don't know maybe yeah. but and we'll see who else comes along can bo nickel do that i don't know maybe i think the ufc themselves man i could it's been so long since i looked at their subscriber count but i think they're just at 12 million yeah so they're barely even on right. that threshold and they're the industry leader you know yeah so, yeah, I think uh, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Who knows? You know, maybe things change ever. wildly. Get better thumbnails, Jason. It'll happen. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. A camera raw filter. Get, your, will... get, get yourself out of the thumbnail and you'll get to 10 million <laughs> subscribers. <laughs> that's it, man. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. And good luck with everything. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on.